Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound. It's limitless. But we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves. And that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. And this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Today I had the pleasure of chatting with Lindo Bacon. Lindo is an intersectional body liberation advocate, nutritionist, researcher, and the author of Health at Every Size, Body Respect, and Radical Belonging. Lindo's books examine the relationship between health and weight, pushing us to think beyond size and into science-backed empathy. Today, Lindo explains why we need to address the social determinants of health, how weight stigma and societal stressors impact health, what we gain from compassionately supporting everybody at every size, and why fat isn't a bad word. We talk about the neurobiological need for radical belonging and why equity and connection is critical for both personal and public health. And finally, Lindo shares a framework for living life with less shame and more availability for presence, pleasure, and empathy. Okay, let's dive into my conversation with Lindo Bacon. I'm really curious about how you're taking care of yourself right now. Well, boy, you start right with the vulnerability, huh? I got to say, that's a really hard question. It's a hard question because I don't think I started off doing it very well. Shortly into the pandemic, I got into a bike accident and I shattered my right arm, which is my dominant arm. Oh, yeah. Wow. So I now have an artificial joint in place and a lot of chronic pain. And I spent like a month in bed So anyway, it 
like I felt like I had no reserves left to deal with it, you know, because already I was missing seeing my friends, you know, feeling kind of disconnected with people be- from people because of the pandemic. And this pandemic is so hard on people and obviously it's hard on people unequally. <laughs> and to watch that, to, be, to witness so much pain And I just felt like I had no defenses anymore. And I dipped down into a depression and it was really tough. And it took all of my skills to just kind of say, hey, you know, like, that's not because there's something wrong with you. That's because this is a hard time. And you have to take in the fact that this is a hard time. And during hard times, you're going to be sad. You're going to have more difficulty connecting with your work, with other people, and just accept this as a time that you can just go inward right now. And so I did. And so I had lots of what I'm going to call unproductive time because it's unproductive in the old way I used to mean productive. And I've changed, my, changed the meaning of productivity, I think, to just include the, the downtime and the quiet time and the not doing anything. And I've done more meditation now than I've ever done before. And I've had to find new ways to kind of appreciate my body because my body just can't do what it used to be able to do anymore. And I have to make adjustments to that and not just feel depressed because I've lost the ability to do certain things. So it's been a hard time. And I should also say that I also feel really excited to see that I've been able to get through that, you know, Like, I have a history of turning to drugs and alcohol as a way of managing that. And I didn't do that. And I also have a history of an eating disorder. And I didn't do that either. Like, I'm able to have fun with food. And I know that I'm definitely using food more as a source of enjoyment now because I don't have as many sources of joy. But it doesn't feel problematic to me. So... It's also very exciting to me to see the growth that I've gone through over the years and that I can manage sadness and depression in ways that I never used to be able to before. So I'm coming out of all that now and I'm feeling more of a sense of happiness and enthusiasm and excitement of all the possibilities. That's really beautiful. And, you know, there are a couple things that you said that really stuck out to me. You know, first, this idea of food as enjoyment, really connecting those two words. And I think also being able to acknowledge previous coping mechanisms and know that you no longer need those and you've been able to transmute those into something else that is now what you can identify as, as a positive interaction or, or, or a positive, you know, like outcome or result, you know, I, I think that's really, I think that's really powerful and, and, and so important and, and actually is a perfect segue to how I wanted to start off our conversation. And 
I, I wanted to start it off with the life pledge from Health at Every Size that I really found so deeply moving and, it, and I'm gonna read it. It says, today I will try and feed myself when I'm hungry. Today I will try to be attentive to how foods taste and make me feel. Today I will choose foods that I like and that make me feel good. Today I will try to honor my body's signals of fullness. Today I will try and find an enjoyable way to move my body. Today I will try to look kindly at my body and to treat it with love and respect. You know, when I read that, it just like moved me at such a deep level because especially even today, I will try to feed myself when I'm hungry. You know, the process of eating, the process of putting nutrients into our body is almost a subconscious process at a certain stage. You're not really thinking about it that much, even if you do struggle with food and weight, you have to do it because you need to do it to survive. But I think this idea of thinking about hunger and feeding yourself, like really creating almost this, this other container in a way for how you look at, at feeding yourself, almost not depersonalizing it, but just pulling it out of that subconscious space and into this active place of inquiry. I'm going to look for hunger and I'm actually going to do something about it. Each part of the pledge seems like an invitation back into your body and back into connection, which I think is so important. And when I look at your work from a macro perspective, and so for those of you that are listening, Linda is an incredibly prolific writer. And, you know, the three books that you've written, I really see health at every size as a manifesto and you know, body respect as, as some kind of how-to manual and then radical belonging truly is an algorithm for the future we want to end up living in. And you know, I started off with this quote from the pledge from Health at Every Size because I think it's kind of the foundation through which everything else kind of grows out of. And it really changed for me so much of what I thought about weight, what I thought about food. And, you know, it really pushes you, or I would say it definitely pushed me out of thinking about size and into this framework of science-backed empathy and, and really looking at the culture we live in and how it impacts how we feel about our bodies. And so can you share a little bit about Health at Every Size and kind of where that came from? So health at every size is based on the simple premise that all bodies are good bodies, and which is a pretty radical notion in this society where we judge people based on bodies, and there's a very strong idea that thinner is better, and that everybody's supposed to be working at weight control so they stay in that quote-unquote normal weight category. And it's very stigmatizing and it's very hard for people to ever appreciate their bodies. And so Health at Every Size is trying to get at that issue. And we're not just looking at it at the individual level, but we're also recognizing that healthcare professionals need to support us on this. And in health, we need to challenge that whole idea that high weight equals bad health because it doesn't. And we need to put our focus on 
what it really means to support people in good health, which is about self-care and taking care of our bodies. And it's also about making sure that we have a culture that provides people with the resources and the ability to do that. So if you're living in poverty, you're not going to have the resources to take care of yourself. So health at every size is also making demands on our culture, not just looking at the individual. Health at every size is now about 12 years old, I think. And at the time, it was the manifesto for the individual. For, so that pledge that you, read, that you read to us was all about what the individual can do. And it never mentions the fact that, hey, that's harder for some people to do because say, say you're heavier, right? You're also dealing with weight stigma and judgment. And it's going to be harder to access some parts of that pledge. Or if you don't have the money to choose foods that are enjoyable to you, that's also going to play into it. So I regret that my first book brought health down to looking at just individual behaviors. When we know, and particularly now we can see so clearly with the pandemic, that social inequity is probably the biggest driver of health. And so if we don't address the social determinants of health, then we end up blaming the individuals and putting the onus on them when that's so false and it's shaming of people. So that's the evolution of my writing where I brought in the social justice issues to a much greater extent in later books. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. What's really interesting too, in, in the sense of you feeling that your first book really focused on the individual and how the individual can kind of mitigate all of these complexities and kind of myths that we have built into food and control that's built into how we eat. But I want to jump from there back to something that you just shared about this idea that high weight equals poor health. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Because I, I do feel that that's really one of the core tenets of, of that first book. Regardless of the relationship between weight and health, 
I think it's always important to stress how important it is that we treat people with respect regardless of their weight or their health status. And that we shouldn't be using low weight as a prerequisite for respecting somebody. But one of the things that I did in my first book, Health at Every Size, and, and also in the other books, was I looked at that whole relationship between weight and health to see what's going on there and whether it really is valuable to be telling people to be thinner if they want to be healthy. And I was really shocked when I started to look at the scientific literature and I found that there's really not a very strong connection between weight and health, or at least not a very strong causative connection. Now, here's what's true. Higher weight people tend to get a, more diseases than lower weight people. So for example, if you look at something like type two diabetes, it's much more common among heavier people than thinner people. But just because it's more common among heavier people doesn't mean that it's their weight that's causing the ill health. And when we start to examine the research, what we can see is that there are a lot of things that drive both weight and health that can explain why heavier people are more likely to have poor health. So for example, weight stigma is one of the biggest issues. If you treat someone poorly because of their weight, then it's gonna trigger a stress response in them. And that's going to increase the likelihood of them getting type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease and a whole host of other problems. So it could be that one of the main reasons why we see more disease among heavier people has to do with how we treat them. And we could also see how issues like racism play into that as well. So I completely agree with you. And, you know, when we think about racism and how that impacts one's lived experience or their ability to live a long life as a black person especially as a black woman this idea of weathering constant exposure to systemic racism shaving you know years off of my life our lives is a real data point we, we know that that's that that's true and a woman can appear you know chronologically to be in her 30s, but, you know, the telomeres on her DNA show her to be much older than that. And so I think, I think what is always so fun about having conversations like this, especially with people who are deep in, in the work and deep in the research, is that there's actually so much we don't know. And I think even this concept that you brought up about social determinants of health is a newer construct that's come forward that really fans out from the core issue or the core disease or problem and looks at all of the other issues that can compound, that can be compounded into someone's existence that can lead them to that disease. It's not just like you eat poorly, then you get diabetes. It's like before the eating poorly, a whole bunch of other things are happening or around the eating poorly, a whole bunch of other things are happening. And so I definitely want to dip back in and talk a little bit more about the social determinants of health because I'm very fascinated by it. And I think most people really don't, people tend to individuate when they are thinking about disease and any kind of problem with the body when we really have to be thinking about these macro factors. And I think sometimes when 
when I say macro factors or when people hear that they're like the environment and pollution and chemicals <laughs> in the water, like, no, actually it's, it's, it's the culture of people that it's the culture we live in and how that, how that impacts. But really off the back of what you just said about respecting people, regardless of how much they weigh and the stressors of weight stigma, I really want to talk a little bit about this idea of thin privilege and thin oppression, which is something that I, you know, have the privilege of, well, I wouldn't say have the privilege, but I would say as someone who has not ever been overweight or have been considered or would have been, that's the word I'm looking for. So no one has ever seen me and said, this is an overweight person. I definitely benefit. That's the word I'm looking for. I definitely am someone who benefits from thin privilege. Can you explain or break that down a little bit for folks in terms of you know, how, what thin privilege is and how it impacts people that are not thin and how it impacts people that are thin. I think it also might be helpful to talk about why you were stumbling over language a little bit there. And here's why. Now, if I were free to use the language right now that I use among my friends, I would have talked about fatness and I would have, like, I have friends who are fat. Because in the culture that I move in, we're destigmatizing the word and we're just recognizing too. this is just another way of being, right? But we have to be a little bit more careful when we're speaking to people who see that word as an insult. So it's not a word that I tend to bring into conversations like this because it's so loaded for so many people. Mm-hmm. And So for any listeners, I want to say that if you are uncomfortable with me using the word, then that's a sign that you have this idea in your head that fatness is bad and that I'm insulting people. And I would love it if we could move to a culture where that word is just normalized. It's just another way of being. And and simultaneously, I also want to talk about, like, so you fell on the word overweight, But I'm sure you can also see that the word overweight is problematic when you just break it down because it says that somebody's over a certain weight that is right. Correct. So again, that's yet another stigmatizing term that like we're putting disease on people just by using the language that we're taught to use and the language that the fat activists and the people that are, that are living in fat bodies want us to take on is scary for so many other people. So it's very difficult to find comfortable language to talk about these issues. So I think now that I've defined how I use the word fat, I'm going to continue to use the word fat in this conversation. And I just want people to understand when I do that, it's not a pejorative term. I completely support that because I, I feel the same. And I think it's interesting that like inner, that inner cop, that inner critic, that's like, Oh, don't say that. Don't say that. Even though like with my friends that are fat, we have no trouble talking about that. And, you know, there's a lot of comfort there actually being able to call it out and to feel safe doing that. So I'm very much in alignment with us being able to use fat in a non pejorative positive sense. Right. And 
I mean, it's kind of ironic, too, that it, it's a little difficult for us to be having this conversation since both of us do have thin privilege to be talking about fat people. So, you know, I, I know you already acknowledge that and I want to acknowledge that, too. And it's sometimes it's difficult to take on language when you have when that kind yours. of... Exactly. But I also have, in my experience, a real a visceral feeling of what it must mean to reclaim language. Because I remember when I was a kid and people would tease me or bully me by calling me queer. And it was really hurtful to me back then because I had this idea that there was something wrong with not fitting in on the same gender spectrum as everybody else or not having the same sexual orientation as, as is expected. And so because I, I also felt that there was something wrong with those identities, it hurt a lot. But now when somebody calls me queer, like, yeah, of course, it feels so right and comfortable because it carries no stigma for me personally. And it's very empowering to just normalize that. So I use the word queer all the time. And I think that many fat people have that experience when they reclaim the word fat, fatness as well. Yeah, I totally hear that. And I feel similarly, I mean, growing up, you know, I would hear the word lesbian and be like, ooh, like, mm, that's not, that feels bad. Or, you know, I had a lot of negative connotations to it. And, you know, when I, came out more publicly last year, I really felt deep alignment with coming out and saying that I was lesbian because that word still holds a lot of stagnant energy currently. And there's still not enough like celebration and visibility around it. And I really felt like that is the word that I identify with the most. And now I, you know, I say it all the time and there is a lot of comfort in it. And I you know, I like to see content that's related to it. And, you know, so I, I really hear, I really hear that. And I really resonate with just the reclamation of words that used to be painful and, right. and being able to really sit inside them with like more comfort and then also more command and then trying to kind of bring more people into the fold around it. Right. So let's get back to the question of thin privilege mm -hmm. and what it is. So thin privilege is basically talking about how there's a background when you're thinner where you're more accepted and the world is built for your comfort and convenience so you go to restaurants there are seats that fit you you go to movie theaters there are seats that fit you there are clothes that fit you in conventional stores if you i went to rent a boat and they didn't have any life preservers to fit my fatter friend, right? And it's not something I ever would have thought of because the world is built for thinner people. And so there's a lot of ways in which when we have thin privilege, we don't even notice it because we just take it for granted. We don't know the fear that a close friend of mine has every time she goes to the doctor because she knows that she's going to get the weight loss lecture and the blame. And it makes it a really uncomfortable experience. And so thin privilege, again, is just the ability to move in the world that is built for you. 
thinking about thin privilege and thinking about this doctor's appointment that you were saying your friend was you know worried or nervous about going to you know i want to lean into this idea of how the medical system and how you know most of these kind of health promotion campaigns really weaponize stigma and shame as tools to help people be healthy. And I don't think that many of us really understand that messaging because going back to thin privilege, pretty much the only campaigns you might take real notice of for things like smoking cessation, you know, things that are kind of like, obviously that's probably not a great thing to do. I should not smoke. You kind of leave it there, but there's a whole other, you know, arc of campaigns that are about healthy eating and they really center thinness as the goal while shaming anything outside of that and actually shaming by omission, just not even showing people at a different size. And so I'm, I'm really curious about your work with healthcare providers to start to combat that and turn that around. How can healthcare providers figure out a more supportive, less harmful way to help people live in their bodies with comfort? I remember one experience I had that made this really vivid for me. It was during Obesity Awareness Month, and I was asked to speak at a high school. And after I, I gave my talk, there was a girl that came up to me and she just started sobbing. And when I could get her to settle down a little bit and talk about what was going on, she talked about her experience of being fat and what it's like to walk through the hallways and to see all of these obesity awareness signs that are basically saying, we don't want anyone to look like you. And she said, I hang out with my thinner friends during lunch and we're all eating the same things, but yet I'm not allowed to eat the junk food. And there's nobody saying to them that their diet matters in health because they're thin. So something is really long, wrong with that messaging. And she also said that she got bullied more during Obesity Awareness Month than in any other time during the year because everybody was focused on weight. So now to get to your question about health professionals, I think it's really simple that we can just remove weight. You can start by removing weight from the equation. If somebody reports that they have bad knees, you do a knee exam and you think about what are the strategies that help people to get stronger knees. And then you can come back to the fact that this is a fat person and maybe adapt, make sure that the advice you're giving is advice that can be carried out. So let me just give you an example of that. My father and I had the exact same knee problem and b both of us went to orthopedic surgeons to get help. And I'm thin and my father was fat. And the orthopedic surgeon told me stretching and strengthening exercises. We tried that for a while and eventually told me about surgery and I got surgery and I don't have any knee problems anymore. It was great. My father went there and his, the recommendation he got was lose weight. Now my father had struggled with weight all his life 
And so all that did was it triggered his eating disorder behavior and it never helped his knees. And he went to his death with knee problems, right? And so it's not good healthcare to focus in. Even if his weight was contributing to his knee problems, telling someone to lose weight is not a solution. We have decades and decades of research that shows us that telling people to lose weight doesn't result in sustained weight loss. We know the biological mechanisms that fight back, that, that make sure that diets don't work to help people to lo lose weight. We even have tons of research that shows that exercise is not effective as a weight loss technique. And so we have so much research that's telling us that it's time to change the paradigm, that all we really have to do is support people in taking good care of their bodies, whatever their bodies look like. And so, yeah, it would have been helpful to start by telling my father to stretch and strengthen his knees. And we could have given him specific exercises that also acknowledge his fatness and also would acknowledge the fact that when fat people go into gyms, they're often stigmatized and it's not a comfortable experience. So helping my father to problematize and come up with an exercise routine that would feel supportive of him. So there's so much that healthcare practitioners can be doing. And the basic idea is just take the emphasis off of weight and look at self-care and also look at culturally what do we need to do to support these people in being able to take better care of themselves. And we can also recognize that, again, there are a lot of things that contribute to knee problems that have absolutely nothing to do with weight. And so we can start to address those. It's interesting how you know, when we think about thin privilege and we think about, you know, the culture, it makes you want to latch on to weight as a first thing because we are really raised in a society that hates fat people and that wants to eradicate that. And so we're going to latch on to that first before thinking of other protocols or tools that could be more helpful. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about eating through a systems informed lens and how important that is. And I think not a lot of people have that perspective when we're shopping for food, when we're cooking food, when we're eating it, when we're thinking of what we want to make for ourselves or what we want to buy, we really need to incorporate that system. So could you speak to a little bit of that? I know, like, there's this old idea that you just tell everyone to eat their fruits and veggies, and that's going to result in better eating behavior and better health. But that's certainly not going to help somebody who, say, is a single mom and struggling to work two jobs to take care of her kids and doesn't have time to cook and can only eat on these 10 minute breaks that she's giving at her fast food job with only fast food available. So it, it becomes a very class-based idea 
to just tell people to eat your fruits and veggies and not consider the conditions of people's lives. Mm. And another aspect of that is that we tend to look at food only as like medicine. And we don't recognize that food plays so many other roles in our life other than just physically nourishing us. Food is also about connection and community. You know, a birthday party is just not the same without a birthday cake. And it's a way of bringing people together and celebrating together. And so if you're restricting yourself and denying yourself, then you're, you're not going to allow food to be all that it can be for you. And what we find is that your body tends to have a reaction to restriction. If you're not getting enough calories, for example, it's going to be making a wider range of foods more appealing to you to try to get you to eat anything just to get some calories back in your body. So that, that desperation that people feel, the, the need to binge, is probably not really a need to always eat emotionally, but maybe, in fact, just a way that your body is asking you to nourish itself because it's deprived at that point. Yeah, it's that physiological imperative that's coming forward, not that you don't have self-control to be able to not eat whatever's in front of you. Exactly. So there are so many considerations that come into play when we think about what to eat or what not to eat, that we have to stop thinking about it as just get your vitamins and minerals in. Yeah. And that really brings me to ask you about, you know, disordered eating. You know, we live in this time right now where there are so many fad diets through social media and you know, individual creators, and there's all of these different ways of eating. And as someone who's, who identifies as having had a eating disorder, how do you describe disordered eating? What does that typically look like? How would someone know that their eating is disordered? Or I would even go as far as to say dysregulated because I think our culture has done a really good job of dressing up certain ways of eating as healthy or better or curative when in fact, when you take all the layers off, we're, we're looking at a disordered eating pattern. Right. Well, I suppose the easy answer here is that food should be enjoyable and a source of nourishment. And if you're feeling guilty about what you're eating, then it's problematic. If you feel like you can't eat the foods that you want to eat, then it's problematic. In general, I mean, there, there are always going to be exceptions, you know. So, for example, if you have celiac disease, it is important to avoid gluten. So there will be some individual considerations that need to come in. But the big picture is, is that we shouldn't be scared of food, that if we can feel relaxed around food, then that, that's a good sign. But as soon as we feel like we need to keep ourselves in check 
or that we can't keep ourselves in check and that it's problematic, those are signs of disordered eating. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. In body respect, the three kind of principles that you bring forward are respect, critical awareness, and compassionate self-care when it comes to, you know, navigating how we eat. Can you, well, not even just navigating how we eat, but also navigating our relationship with food. Is Can you explain what that looks like, you know, in someone's everyday life? Like, how can we bring respect and awareness and compassion to our food and to what we're putting in our bodies? Right. Well, respect is about like learning how to appreciate your body. But I also want to say that that's, some people may never get there. It's a hard thing to do when you keep coming up against the culture that says there's something wrong with your body. So I don't want people to feel like a failure if they can't get to a sense of comfort in their body. And yet I also want to keep pushing people to recognize that the problem is in the culture, not in our bodies. So just respecting the spectrum of bodies. And critical awareness is about challenging the ideas that we have about food and weight. Because most of what we're told about food and weight just is not based on solid evidence. You know, that whole idea, if you just eat less and exercise more, you're going to lose weight, is a complete fallacy. And the idea that if you go to a vegan diet, you're definitely going to get thinner is also a fallacy. And all, you know, any of these diets, when you examine the science behind them, nobody is showing maintained weight loss over the long run. And when we study the physiology behind how, how weight is regulated, we can understand why none of these things work. And it can be so difficult to challenge the idea that eating in a certain way is going to make sure that you never get cancer or type 2 diabetes, because those just, that just isn't true. What you eat plays remarkably little role in most diseases, and it's very much overstated in many diseases. And it's, it's not going to guarantee people good health. 
And if you're stressing about what you're eating, we know how damaging that's going to be to you as well. So that's not going to be promoting good health. So the more people can relax around food, the better it's going to be. And it's really fascinating too. There's actually been research that shows that if you enjoy your food, you absorb the nutrients from it better, right? There, there was a research study that they gave people two meals. It was the identical food. It was a Thai meal. But in, for one group of people, they took the meal and they put it through a, a blender. So it was just in a different form, but it had all the same stuff in it. And then they looked at how much, how much nutrients people absorbed. And they found that when people ate it the conventional way, they were able to absorb a lot more nutrients and enjoy it more. So it's fascinating that our body is supporting us in getting the nourishment it needs through enjoyment. Would it be safe to say, because you just stated that how you eat isn't going to be the key determinant to your health. And obviously stressing out about what you eat is only going to create more dis-ease in your body. Would you say that, or maybe a better way of, ask, of saying this is to ask you, what does promote good health? If it's not either of those, if it's not eating well, what, what can we do? The largest thing that we can do is provide more resources and support on a cultural level. So for example, raising the minimum wage is going to have much bigger impact on people's health than if everybody started to eat more fruits and veggies. And that is something that we have known for a long time. Our health promotion campaigns should not be about what the individual should do. Our health promotion campaigns should be targeting how as a culture we can support people in living well. We've been touching in on culture and, and how it impacts everything that we do. But I think what was so profound for me when I was reading Radical Belonging, which is your latest book, were two things. One was this concept of our neurobiological need for belonging and how belonging in many ways can be a panacea for a lot of problems that we're experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. Everything from addiction, depression, anxiety, you know, belonging definitely is a way to, to mitigate that. And then the other thing that you kind of brought to the fore in that book was this idea of the problem with self-love. And I think there's a quote from the book that you say self-love is a spoonful of sugar that makes the oppression go down and how we need to really move from self-love to this concept of radical belonging. So I'd love for you to speak a little bit about that neurobiological component around belonging and how self-love needs to be something we move away from towards belonging. Right, yeah, self-love is a beautiful thing but it, no matter how much you love yourself, when you go into a culture that doesn't treat you well, it's going to be hard to feel good about yourself. And so we need to change the cultural 
context to support everybody in feeling good. And what we know is that when you when you're treated poorly, there's a biological response to that. And it's traumatizing to go into the world all the time and not get treated well. And it's traumatizing when you work so hard and yet you can't make money because you know you don't have access to the education that might give you a better job or employers that can see past your skin color. So if we don't create the conditions to support people, then what's going to happen is we're going to keep creating a trauma response in their bodies that's going to participate not only in ill health, but it's going to cut us away from, from each other. Right. If we if we have these judgments of what is a good body and how to treat people, then we're not going to be able to see people for who they are. And then you lose out on something unique that they could bring to the world. An employer will lose out on a lot of great opportunities and possibilities if racism or weightism enters into their hiring decisions you're not going to get the best employees possible. So if we can widen the lens to see people and value everybody for their uniqueness, we're going to find that we can enjoy the world so much more and that we're going to have, we're going to, people are going to be able to contribute so much more to the world. It's going to be a more fun place. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, this idea of, of fun and this idea of all of us kind of co-creating this environment where everybody can exist and everyone has this potential or is able to tap into that potential to thrive. You know, it makes me think a lot about that neurobiological piece. You know, what is the driver that makes us even want to to do that. And I was wondering if you could share just a little bit about how our brains really need other people in order to feel a sense of place and a sense of, you know, of health. It's fascinating when you start to examine the whole biology of connection. So for example, you find that people have what we call mirror, mirror neurons. And what a mirror neuron does is it takes on what's going on in the other person. So if you're attuned to another person, let's say you're with a good friend and you're hearing about something that's really horrible that just happened to them and you're attuned to their emotions, that you have neurons that are going to change the facial expressions you have to more mimic the kind of expressions they have on, your, on their face without even knowing it, that our bodies are meant to be attuned to other people's and to adapt to them, right? But what we also know is that we have a fear response and the fear of rejection is really strong, which makes sense biologically because if you were rejected from a group, 
then you couldn't survive before. Like we really needed other people so that we could hunt together and take care of the community together. And an individual, on the other hand, would be really vulnerable to a predator. So the need for belonging is really built into us, including a very strong fear of rejection. And what happens then is we build these cultural norms, and when we shut people out because they don't measure up to those norms, it triggers a very strong biological response in them that's quite painful, and it makes them want to belong. And the only way that people can usually see is to develop this faux sense of belonging. You know, like you just try to fit in. So, for example, when I got rejected for being too masculine as a kid, I learned that if I could just dress more like a girl, my parents would be kinder to me and treat me better, and I wouldn't get teased as much by other kids. So, I learned to create this whole false self so that I wouldn't have to keep facing that rejection, which is just so painful. But of course, we know that there's also a biological response to that because you never get seen for who you are and you never get valued and appreciated for who you are. When people appreciate you, you can't really take that in because they're not really seeing who you are. So you don't get all of the great benefits that come from being loved and appreciated. Like there's so many hormonal benefits you get from being loved that you can't get if you don't feel a sense of belonging. So biologically, we're really set up to need a sense of belonging in order to be healthy and to feel a sense of well-being. So as a culture, we need to do a much better job of letting everybody in. The fact that there is so much sexism and racism and transphobia and all of the other isms, this is what is contributing to ill health. And what we really need is more of a sense of belonging and equity and treating people well if we want to see greater longevity, more fun, and if we want to develop as, as a society, we're missing out on so much because we don't let so many people in and we don't get to see what their unique contributions and talents could be. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. 
and they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to NordicKnots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. On as we move into this next stage of the pandemic where people are being vaccinated, we're able to kind of come together again. You know, what's your advice for reentry as we start to figure out what that looks like to be with people? Because for, you know, a whole year we were told to social distance, which I really wish we had been told to physically distance because this idea of social distancing as someone who deeply believes that words have power, it really, I think, severed this like emotional connection that we already were doing such a poor job at anyway. You know, how do we cultivate radical belonging after this collective trauma we have all been through? Well, one thing I think it's taught us is to see people better. So for example, I think previously, we would see workers as disposable. If we went to, many people go to restaurants and they never actually saw the server as a real person. They just saw the server as someone who was taking care of their needs. And we know now that if that server's needs aren't taken care of, that threatens everybody. And so, we have a greater responsibility to actually see people and make sure that their needs are met. And one way that that comes up in is say tipping, right? We can recognize there is so much inequity right now in terms of how people make money. And we can't just put it on the culture to change. I mean, yes, we need to start valuing people more and start paying people more in those low, currently lower wage jobs and also changing what's happening at the upper echelons as well. But in the meantime, individuals can be doing a lot to create equity. So people in positions of privilege could recognize that they can equalize the playing field a little bit more. You know, like one of the things that I just did recently with my partner is we just changed our will because our previous will had our son inherited everything. And that's a big problem in our society today is generational wealth just keeps getting passed down. And other people who say their ancestors came to this country as slaves never had access to being able to get that money to be able to pass down. And that's just not fair. And so in our will, we're spreading the wealth and trying to change that pattern. Right. And of course, we don't have to just wait until we die. We're being much more conscientious that the money that we have right now is not necessarily money that we earned. I mean, yes, we worked hard for it, but we have had so many privileges that have supported us in being able to get in this position that we didn't earn everything that we have. And so I think that we all need to bring that awareness into our daily lives right now. And so the people that are 
the less privileged need to recognize that there's, that's not because there's something wrong with them. That's not because they're stupid. It's not because they're not working hard enough. It's because they haven't been given the support and the resources to be able to make as good of a life for themselves. And so we've got to figure out how we can all be working to level that playing field. Yeah. And kind of coming out of that, I really love those examples so much, but I want to drop it down a layer or two and just think about this idea of radical belonging and how it can show up in our inner, in our interpersonal relationships, you know, in our relationships with our partners and our relationships with our colleagues. I, I would say particularly in our relationships with our colleagues because work is where we spend so much of our time, you know, in this day and age. How do we, how do we create those small moments of belonging or helping to cultivate that between my, between basically trying to cultivate that between ourselves and the people that we care about and also people that we don't even know yet. Right. Okay. Well, let's start on the, on a much more intimate level with people that we really care about. And let's think of the old model of how you treat people who are addicts. And that's like tough love, right? You, you shun them, you, you, know, you tell them there's something wrong, they just have to stop. But with radical belonging, instead what you do is you create this environment that says, hey, I understand life is tough for you. And I understand why you're seeking comfort, that you might want to seek comfort in drugs because you know, you don't have the skills to be able to sit with your emotions right now. I mean, hopefully we can say all of these things much more diplomatically than I just said. But the idea is to sit with people in their pain rather than judging them and trying to change them. And if you can share people's worlds with them and make room for them, then you can create space where they can just be who they are and then they're less likely to need the drugs as a coping mechanism because they can sit with their emotions better because they now have more safety and security with that. So that's an example. And I think the whole basic idea here is to just give people space to be who they are, to sit with them in any way they are, and in our differences. And rather than going into judgment of good or bad. Thanks for listening to my chat with Lindo Bacon. I encourage you to check out Lindo's work and their books, Health at Every Size, Body Respect, and Radical Belonging. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.